the, uh, after that stroke of brilliance for our meditation music, I feel like I could just say, there, and I'm done with my platform. If you have seen Shawshank Redemption, those strains of music may be familiar to you, and we'll talk a little bit about them later. This is the third in our uh, four-part movie series this summer, <clears throat> and actually, if you had asked me a couple of weeks ago, that music would have meant nothing to me. This is the only one of the four films that I hadn't seen before I agreed to put it on our four-part series. I, my third choice was, um, was Amélie, um, which is really more my style of film. You know, Amélie is like a little quirky, cute French girl, and she goes around with random acts of kindness, and she's adorable, and it's like a little asymmetrical haircut, I think, too, even. And um, so that's my style, and, and I thought that would be a great um, final choice for our movie series. That would round it out, and uh, luckily the staff convinced me that we just had Lars and the Real Girl, which is already kind of a quirky, adorable indie flick, and maybe we didn't need one more quirky, adorable indie flick. I feel like we could have had like 10 quirky, adorable indie flicks, but no. Instead, they convinced me to go with Shawshank Redemption, which was, of our four movies, the one with by far the most votes from folks here at WES, that it was a movie that to them spoke about ethical culture, about who they wanted to be in the world, about the world at large. I watched the movie a couple weeks ago, and as it turns out, they were right. Not only does it delve into some challenging ethical issues, right and wrong, revenge, but it also has at its core some of the deepest philosophical and religious questions that we grapple with, any of us as humans. This is indeed sacred text. The movie, as many of you may know, centers around two characters, Andy, who's played by Tim Robbins, who is a white man, a banker who is convicted of murdering his wife and her lover, and is given two life sentences and sent to a prison in Maine. It's a fictional prison. The movie is actually based on a short story by Stephen King. And then the other main character is Red, uh, played by Morgan Freeman. Red is a black man who is in the middle of a life sentence when we meet him. He has been just denied parole for presumably the second time. And his role in the prison is to supply black market items. He can get you what you need. Everything from cigarettes to a poster of Rita Hayworth. The story, originally by Stephen King, is actually called, uh, uses Rita Hayworth in the, in the title, and the poster indeed becomes quite important to the plot of the film. The first thing that I thought when I watched this film was about the power of cinema to tell a justice story that we need to hear. The the experience of watching Shawshank Redemption, especially if you are awake to mass incarceration in America, is a painful one. 
although the setting is in Maine beginning in 1947 and stretching over several decades as we watch the lives of these two men and their friends unfolding in prison. Even though it is a period movie about jail, it brings the experience of incarceration, I think, home to us in a way that even the best statistics cannot. And indeed, the prison that we see in the movie of Shawshank Redemption in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s is no worse and perhaps even better than the prisons that we see today in America. The experience of being incarcerated is for some of us a removed one, one we can read about but have not experienced on our own. And so my first takeaway from this movie was gratitude that art and the creative process that cinema can give us a little window into what that experience must feel like. The core of that experience, and the core really through the first part of the movie, is the inhumanity and cruelty found in prison. The beginning of the movie shows the fear of entering prison and sets up how ridiculous it is to imagine our current system as anything like a rehabilitative experience. The guards are cruel, of course, and the warden is the cruelest of all. At the beginning of the film, he says to new entries into the prison, new prisoners, I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Trust in the Lord, your ass belongs to me. Red, who provides the narration for much of the movie and is the voice of wisdom throughout, says, when they put you in that cell and those bars slam down, that's when you know it's for real. Whole life gone in the blink of an eye. I do want to share some statistics, although I think cinema tells us something in our hearts that we can only understand in our minds without that sense of being there. But I will share that from the NAACP, from 1980 to 2008, the number of people incarcerated in America quadrupled from roughly 500,000 to 2.3 million people. You'll note that that uh, correlates with the war on drugs in America. Today in America, we are 5% of the world population and 25% of the world's prisoners. If you combine the number of people in prison and jail with those who are under parole or proba probation supervision, one in every 31 adults in America, or 3.2% of the population, is under some form of correctional control. And that does not seem to be decreasing. Indeed, that number continues to rise. Beyond simply the number of people in America who are in correctional control, so much larger than almost any other country in the world, the movie points to several elements of the American prison system that are especially troubling. One is the general idea of rehabilitation and whether our prison system offers that as we have set it up. I went to, um, was very lucky actually to go to the State of Women Summit that um, President and um, Mrs. Obama uh, sponsored a couple of um, weeks ago in the, in the early summer. And I want to thank the board and staff, and actually I think under the mastermind of Robin Kravitz, who nominated me to be among the women there. It was a fabulous summit with unbelievable speakers. You know, Oprah was there, Michelle Obama was there, um, just chatting like, you know, 
know, hanging out on a couch as the rest of us obsessively filmed them. And, um, but one of the most powerful pieces for me was actually an, a breakout session, which was um, with a number of women, all of the speakers throughout the day were, um, or the majority of them were women, was with a number of women who had been incarcerated, including um, Piper, who is the author and um, origin of The Orange is the New Black, which has been such a popular show. Piper has actually done a fair amount of work on mass incarceration, and she was there for star power, but the other women in the panel were the really impressive ones, women who had been incarcerated and are now working to change that system. And what came across to me was how ridiculous it is that we imagine that a system of punishment, control, um, would ever be able to rehabilitate, would ever be able to bring someone back in connection with their best selves and with their community, a system that t takes them away from their community and for our DC residents who are incarcerated, takes them very far from their community, as we've learned from our friend Stuart Anderson with Family and Friends of Incarcerated People, who's here with us today. DC residents have no local prison, and so they are sent anywhere in the country, frequently Ohio, West Virginia, hours away from a community, from their community and their family, their best chance, perhaps, of reconnecting. And indeed, we see the results of our system with high rates of recidivism in America, or repeat offense. From the National Institute of Justice, which is a government agency, the Bureau of Justice Statistics have found high rates of recidivism. One study tracked 404,000 prisoners in 30 states after their release from prison in 2005. Within three years of release, about two-thirds of released prisoners were re-arrested. Within five years, three-quarters were re-arrested. Of the prisoners who were rearrested, more than half of them had been arrested by the end of their first year. So, on one level, it's just not working, right? <laughs> it's not doing what we seem to suggest it should be doing. And Shawshank Redemption brings that home so clearly. It couldn't possibly, this system that is inhumane and cruel. Another piece that comes out in the movie for me is the idea of prison labor used for profit. The movie actually shows the warden having a great new idea, a program that would bring prisoners out into the community teaching them job skills, or as someone in the movie calls it, this pool of slave labor you've got. The prisoners go out and work uh, in the community making money for the prison, of course, they are paid slave wages. And that, as you might know, exists rampantly today. A huge number of our incarcerated people work and do not see the fruits of that labor at any time. It's not held in escrow for them later when they are released back into society. And, of course, the corruption follows in Shawshank Redemption. As Andy says, it's a river of dirty money coming into this place. Andy uses his banker skills to cover for the money over the course of the movie. As he says, at one point on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. The profiteering of prison goes beyond now using prisoner labor for profit uh, to simply making prisons for, prisons for profit enterprises. In many states in this country, prisons 
are for-profit, resulting in a prison industrial complex in the millions and billions of dollars. As Brian Stevenson writes in Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, the business interests that capitalize on prison construction made imprisonment so profitable that millions of dollars were spent lobbying state legislators to keep expanding the use of incarceration to respond to just about any problem. Certainly may account for some of the recidivism. It's good business to arrest people and keep them in jail. Incarceration became the answer to everything, Stevenson goes on. Healthcare problems like drug addiction, poverty that had led someone to write a bad check, child behavioral disorders, managing the mentally disabled poor, even immigration issues generated responses from legislators that involved sending people to prison. Never before had so much lobbying money been spent to expand America's prison population, block sentencing reforms, create new crime categories, and sustain the fear and anger that fuel mass incarceration than during the last 25 years in the United States. And there in Shawshank Redemption, we see the clever warden beginning the process of profiting from his prisoners. And then finally, the other piece that comes home to me about our mass incarceration system, about the prison system in America in Shawshank, is the practice of solitary confinement. Several times over the course of the movie, Andy is sent to the hole to solitary confinement, first for a week, then a month, and then another month. And by the later ones, you can see and feel viscerally in only the way a good cinema can show you, if you have not been there yourself, the damage to the human spirit and the human mind from solitary confinement. The National Religious Campaign Against Torture puts it this way. Experts estimate that tens of thousands of prisoners in the US criminal justice system are currently being held in solitary confinement. The vast majority of these inmates are detained in state prison facilities. They are often detained in a cell by themselves for 23 hours a day. Just take a minute and imagine that. 23 hours a day in a cell by yourself. Some prisoners, National Religious Campaign Against Torture goes on, are kept in these conditions for months, years, or even decades. Medical experts have stated that prisoners held in isolation for extended periods experience symptoms akin to delirium, and the impact on mentally ill prisoners is especially damaging. Alarmingly, these prisoners are sometimes released from solitary confinement units directly to their communities when they complete their prison sentence. National Religious Campaign Against Torture began actually while I was an intern at River Road UU Congregation. It was started by a congregant there and then took on a life of its own. It began to respond to uh, torture that was happening internationally and in the last couple of years has turned its focus to the torture that happens in our own prison system, to solitary confinement, which is a practice which is inhumane. As I watched Shawshank Redemption and these images from the prison and thought to myself that this was like one of the good prisons, right? 1940s in Maine, there was a fair amount of freedom allowed to the inmates. I wondered how we can watch a movie like this, one which has been extraordinarily popular, viewed all over America by 
probably millions of people, how we watch a movie like this and not come away convicted that our system is inhumane. Not only does it not work, but it treats people as less than human. We must, I concluded, believe that they are. That broader topic of dehumanization and then rehumanization, how people grab at their own humanity despite the worst conditions around them, that also stood out to me in this movie. At the very beginning of the movie, one of the new entrants into the prison is killed on his first night there uh, by, by guards. Sorry, I should say that, although maybe it felt obvious to me. <coughs> Andy um, asks his name the next morning of a fellow inmate, asks what his name was, and the inmate responds with anger, and I'll excuse my language here because it is the language of the movie, and I think it's important. The inmate responds with anger. It doesn't fucking matter what his name was. He's dead. Was one of the most heart-wrenching lines in the movie for me because it indicated not just the loss of life, but the complete loss of humanity. The stripping of someone's identity, their very name. It doesn't matter what their name is anymore. They're dead. And yet, throughout the movie, we see moments of the men reclaiming their humanity in beautiful and amazing ways. It begins when they're tarring the roof of the prison, all working together, and Andy, who, as you recall, is a banker, overhears one of the prison guards complaining about how he got an inheritance, but, it, you know, the state's going to take it all in taxes, and he um, goes out on a limb and eventually actually goes out on the edge of the roof where the guard is holding him over <laughs> and tells him that he could help him, that he knows how you can set up a certain tax structure and make it a gift to your wife and not have to pay taxes on an inheritance. And the, the guard says, well, what would you want for that? And, uh, and Andy says, well, it's hot out here tarring the roof. We seems like we all could use a beer. And the guard brings out beer for the men tarring the roof. And they sit and drink. Red narrates for us the experience. We felt like free men, he said. I think he did it just to feel normal again, if only for a short while. The thing that these moments of rehumanization, the, the beer on the roof, the poster of Rita Hayworth and Marilyn Monroe, the chess set that Andy carves so that he can play chess, the little pieces that makes the men feel human again. It makes you wonder what would happen if you actually set up a prison system that affirmed people's humanity rather than stripping it away. Last March, there was an article in the New York Times about the prison system in Norway, which is about as different from ours as can be. The article writes, to anyone familiar with the American correctional system, Halden, a prison in Norway, seems alien. 
its modern, cheerful, and well-appointed facilities, the relative freedom of movement it offers, its quiet and peaceful atmosphere. It's out in the middle of the woods in nature. These qualities are so out of sync with the forms of imprisonment found in the United States that you could be forgiven for doubting whether Halden is a prison at all. It is, of course, but it is also something more the physical expression of an entire national philosophy, philosophy about the relative merits of punishment and forgiveness. The treatment of inmates at Halden is wholly focused on helping to prepare them for a life after they get out. What a concept. <laughs> Not only is there no death penalty in Norway, there are no life sentences. The unofficial motto of the Norwegian Correctional Service is better out than in. One might imagine that the unofficial motto of the American Correctional Service is better in than out. Keep them in as long as possible. Put them in for things that aren't a danger to society. Keep them there and treat them badly. Now, if this seems impossible, Norway is, after all, a different country than America. It's smaller, has a smaller prison population, although that goes with its motto. It's true that there are differences we would have to decide to incarcerate fewer people. Perhaps we might want to spend some of that money on education, I'm just saying. But these reforms are actually relatively new, and in that I find a kernel of hope. The article goes on to talk about the fact that Norwegian prisons actually operated much like their American counterparts until 1998, quite recently. That was the year that Norway's Ministry of Justice reassessed the Correctional Service's goals and methods putting the explicit focus on rehabilitating prisoners through education, job training, and therapy. A second wave of change in 2007 made a priority of reintegration with a special emphasis on helping inmates find housing and work with a steady income before they are even released. 1998 and 2007, not so long ago. It gives me hope that this is something we could do in America, that we are not consigned to a prison system that simply creates more prisoners, that dehumanizes people further and rips them from their communities and their families. And we are, I think, I hope, beginning to wake up to this. President Obama was the first president to ever visit an American prison. Can you believe that? Just think about that for a minute. The number of our citizens who are in prison, who are incarcerated, and Obama was the first president to visit a prison, to talk with people there, to experience for himself what it was like. There was an article just recently in the Washington Post about a survey done of victims of violent and property crimes. And the fascinating thing about this survey, victims, right, who you would expect would be tough on crime, wanting long and difficult sentences, to the surprise of some, the article says, the National Survey on Victims' Views found that the overwhelming majority of crime victims believe that the criminal justice system relies too heavily on incarceration and strongly prefer investments in treatment and prevention to more spending on prisons and jails. By two to one, victims said that the criminal justice system should focus more on rehabilitating people who commit crimes as opposed to punishing them. And indeed, we see programs all over the country, like Family and Friends of Incarcerated People, like programs that work bringing education into prisons, allowing people to do distance learning, to receive college degrees, just as Andy in the Shawshank Redemption wrote letter after letter after letter, 
every week until he was able to build a library. There's a great moment in the movie where he receives a carton of books and a letter from the state that says, um, we hope this satisfies you. Please stop writing us letters now. <laughs> and his response is to say, oh, the letter writing worked. I'll do it twice a week now. <laughs> he builds a huge library all over the country. We see prisoners who reclaim their humanity themselves despite our best efforts to strip them of it. They reclaim their humanity with books, with learning, with connections that they must build themselves. One of my favorite moments in the movie you have just heard. It was a moment that speaks to rehumanization on a grand scale. When he gets that shipment of books, that first shipment included in it are a series of records. And Andy finds a record of an aria of opera singers. The guard who's with him trusts him enough at this point that he's gone to the bathroom. They don't want a library really in the prison, so he actually told him he had to get rid of all the books um, while he goes to the bathroom. So he goes to the bathroom and, uh, and Andy puts the record on the record player. And, uh, and then thoughtfully and cleverly locks the guard into the bathroom and uh, locks the outside door and turns on the PA system. And all through the prison come the sounds that Leah shared for us, the sounds of opera. It's the marriage of Figaro coming through the PA system and Red narrates the experience for us. I like to think they were singing of something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in the great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our little cage and made those walls dissolve away. For the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. For me, the overall message of the Shawshank Redemption is not one of brutality or cruelty, not one of dehumanization, although it brings up all those experiences for us. The ultimate message is one of hope of how we claim our hope and humanity, our care for each other. A friend of mine calls this movie the greatest love story on film. The love story between Red and Andy. Red, who serves as a mentor and guide for Andy when he is newly in prison. And Andy, who reminds Red about the importance of hope. You need it so you don't forget, Andy says. Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't get to, can't touch. It's yours. Red responds, hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. It can drive a man insane. Got no use for it on the inside. 
And yet, Andy keeps on hoping. He keeps on writing those letters and builds a library eventually. I'm not going to tell you the end of the movie, both because it's a big spoiler, I gasped. Maybe the rest of you didn't because you knew what was coming. But <clears throat> um, and also because the ending is more Hollywood <laughs> than deeply felt ethical culture values, more Hollywood than hope and resilience in our prison system. But I will say that by the end of the story, Andy's hope is justified. And Red is still in prison, grappling with what a life in prison without Andy could mean. At his final parole hearing, Red cuts the crap. <laughs> At every other parole hearing through the movie, he has answered just as the parole board might want to hear, oh yes, I'm rehabilitated, oh yes, of course, I'm ready, I'm no threat to society. Toward the end of the movie, he comes back after for his 30-year parole hearing and says this. Rehabilitated? I don't have any idea what that means. I know what you think it means. To me, it's just a made-up word, a politician's word so that young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm here, because you think I should. I look back on the way I was, the young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him, tell him the way things are. But I can't. That kid's long gone. This old man's all that's left. I got to live with that. Rehabilitated, that's a bullshit word. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Because to tell you the truth, I don't give a shit. Now, on the one hand, Red is speaking all his cynicism, all his contempt for the system, and he's right. But on the other hand, he is reclaiming his identity, no longer willing to say what he is supposed to to the parole board, but instead saying what he truly believes. That final hearing is accepted. And Andy offers a final gift for Red, one we learn in the last 15 minutes or so of the film. A practical gift, but also one that, like everything in the movie, holds a deep spiritual and ethical resonance. Remember, Red, Andy tells him, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and a good thing never dies. As I finished the Shawshank Redemption, I wondered what it asks us to hope for, what redemption it offers and invites us into. Redemption, perhaps, for our prison system, for the system of mass incarceration that damages so many lives and communities in our country. And I think that redemption is possible. I believe that we can change how we respond to crime, how we create safety, real safety, in our community and in the lives of all citizens in America, all who live here. But the other kind of redemption is much more personal. 
The movie asks us, I think, to be Andy and Red, to be part of this great love story. These friends who bring to each other wisdom and hope, who don't let each other down or let each other go. It asks us to search for that hope in our own lives and to bring it to a country, a society that so deeply needs it. That is true redemption. <laughs>